Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Triple R. We are going to talk about puppetry. Sarah Kriegler is the co-director of Lemony S Puppet Theatre, and she is the producer of the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry, which is on now, kicked off on Wednesday, uh, and takes place both at La Mama HQ in Faraday Street, Carlton, and the La Mama Courthouse in Drummond Street, Carlton, and in other areas, which we'll get into in just a moment. But as always, my traditional disclaimer, because I'm the board, uh, sorry, I'm the chair of the La Mama Committee of Management, I'm not bored, um, uh, because I'm the chair, uh, this interview could be considered the conflict of interest, but I make no financial benefit from promoting La Mama at any time. But, Sarah, welcome. Sorry, that's a long spiel. I liked it. It was good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. One of the things that I love about this festival mm-hmm. is that, yes, it takes place in theatres. Yes. But you've also got roaming puppets out in the streets, and you're also taking it to the, the nearby housing commission kind yeah. of as well. We've got more than that even, though, Richard. Yes, we've got roving throughout the streets of Carlton. So um, if you come in the middle of the day, you'll get to meet all kinds of wild creatures that are wandering the streets of Carlton, including down Ligon Street and in amongst the shops and things there. Um, we also have a free performance of a show called Rolling that is by Bonkle Theatre that's on today at 11 o'clock. Yes, 11 o'clock out the front of La Mama. We also are having a community day um, down at the Carlton High Rise Estate on Saturday, where there's all kinds of different things available for the community down there, including some shows and workshops and roving puppets again. But one thing that we we have, um, so that's new to the festival this year, is the um, puppet picnic down at the flats. But one other thing that's happening this year that we've never done before, which is totally wild, is um, we have a puppet treasure map that is going all through the streets of Carlton with um, local businesses and all of the venues that are involved in the festival, including the Kathleen Symes Community Centre and um, La Mama and Courthouse. And a whole lot of businesses have got involved this year and you can come down to La Mama and receive a puppet treasure map and answer some amazing questions on the back. You follow the map around Carlton. There's all these beautiful window displays that have been done by the artist Fiona MacDonald. Um, Some businesses did their own, like the Poppy Shop, of course, because they know how to do window displays. But um, Fiona MacDonald did the rest, and it's all kinds of different puppets and information about puppets all around the whole of Carlton. So it's everywhere actually, Richard. <laughs> it really is. It's, is this the most ambitious festival that you've done for the, the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry? Most definitely. And one thing I forgot to mention is actually there's a whole other venue, which is the Motley Bauhaus, where we've got our adult program, which starts this evening. And you've also got a workshop program as well. We do. I, I was quietly not mentioning that because it's totally sold out, except okay. for Friday's Junk Puppet Workshop, which is for kids. That's at 12 o'clock with Paris Bella. Um, But everything else is quite full now. So, (laughs) workshops aside... Workshops aside. Given that this is such an ambitious program Mm -hmm. for the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry this year, what does this say in terms of the demand and interest in puppets and puppeteering, not just in the sector, but from the public as well? 
Well, I could say from the fact that so many things have sold out and so many families are coming and spending the entire day going from show to show to show, doing the um, treasure map and having a cup of tea and hot chocolate and all of that, I think there's quite a lot of demand for it. I mean, it's an ancient art form that is deeply charming and extremely moving um, as a human. You know, we really do connect with puppetry in a very different way to how we connect with uh, other live art forms. Um, so people are continuously amazed. And what we've done deliberately in this festival is we've created um, kind of like a menu of what's possible in puppetry. So there's a whole lot of different styles. So really what you're going to see in every show is completely different to the next one. So, for example, there's a show called um, Dreamer and the Tiger and the Rainbow Tiger, which is a blacklight theatre show, which we never really get to see in um, Australia. Uh, and this is super interesting work, very beautiful visually, um, very good for little kids actually because it's um, kind of a non-narrative, non-verbal story. There's another work that's in a marionette work that's on, this, on the weekend. Or actually, it starts on Friday. Again, we don't get to see marionettes very often. But then there's a whole lot of other works that are just kind of um, combining shadows and storytelling or they're doing uh, object theatre and storytelling. So really, it's a menu. You can see whatever you want, experiment, experience all different um, samples of it. Sarah, why don't we get to see blacklight puppetry and marionette puppetry very often in Australia? Well, I think one of the reasons is most of these companies are really quite small and so they are making works for uh, schools, audiences and, um, and community festivals and kindergartens, things like that. So if you're in kinder, you get to go and see them, but it's very rare that you get to buy a ticket and go and see these shows. They're not open to the general public very often, which is one of the reasons we started the festival, because working in theatre and puppetry, we're really aware of all of these interesting companies that are out there doing these amazing works on smaller scales, um, and people don't get to see them, uh, unless you go to kinder or unless you're a school kid. So it's really nice to be able to open up these companies um, to the general public. I mean, our own work is um, we, we, people get to see that a bit more because it is for bigger venues. We rarely put our work into the festival because it doesn't fit, but maybe in the future when we expand even further, we'll be able to do that. Sounds yeah. like there's some grand ambitions at play. There are, yes. <laughs> I'm speaking with Sarah Kriegler about the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry. Sarah, tell us what first got you into puppetry as an art form. What was the fascination for you? And why does it continue to fascinate you? Well, I suppose the reason I like puppetry is I see it as a really useful storytelling motif. I The work that we make usually um, combines actors and puppets and we use puppetry where you can't use an actor. So, for example, um, a work that we, did, we have done in the past, it's been in Melbourne a few times, um, called Picasso and the dog and his dog is the story of the artist Pablo Picasso and a puppet that he that's oh, not a puppet what am I saying a dog that he had in the last 16 years of his life that he was completely obsessed with this dog became one of his artist muses and he made over 50 artworks around this sausage dog called Lump so in our work the um Picasso is played by an actor called Ben Grant and the dog is played by a puppet because there's no way really to um, tell that story other than using puppetry. So in our work, we're really interested in um, 
in how puppetry enhances the story um, and it's a and using it as a tool that is um, when there's no other answers if you had a, if you're making a film you could possibly do some CGI or something like that but in a live performance uh, what am I trying to say live performance experience there's no other way to um, create a dog on stage I mean you could put somebody in a dog suit but it would be really bad so we're not going to do that so we made this beautiful puppet. Um, so yeah. puppetry allows storytellers to create stories, show uh, emotions and experiences in a way that would otherwise not be possible on stage. Correct. And, it, and I think it's good to think about it as magical realism, you know, because you can make fantastical things happen on stage. It, it's secretly quite simple. Um, but it doesn't look simple when you are engaging an audience with puppetry the way that most of these artists are doing in the festival. Let's talk about some of the specific shows that are in the festival. I would love to. Um, I'm not going to ask you to name a favourite because that would be... Would it's sort be... of impossible, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But also it would be unethical because... Correct. Can, like, I don't want you to have to kind of like, I don't know, show love to, to somebody and, uh, and overlook <laughs> somebody else. But... Looking at, for example, the La Mama website, the yes. image for the show uh, Pearly White's Sanctum, uh, which appears to be somebody being swallowed by a giant mouth. Correct. Tell That's, us more. Well, I can tell you more, but we'll ruin it. But um, what I'm going to say is it's actually the funniest show I've seen for years. We, that was on in the 2021 festival um, in between two lockdowns. We did a smaller version of the festival. Um, and we felt like not enough people saw it. So that's why we brought it back for this year because it really is so fun. It's Sanctum Theatre. Um, it is The puppet is a giant mouth and the man who you'll see in that, he thinks he's found a cave. And that's probably all I should say. The children know very well it's a mouth and that's part of the joy is this huge battle that goes on with the audience versus this fool who thinks he's found a cave. Excellent. Um, uh, I'm also intrigued by In Search of the Giddy Gird Bird because this is the Sydney Puppet Theatre. Correct. And that's the marionette show. I sh should have mentioned the name before. Yes, yeah, so Sydney Puppet Theatre, um, they used to be based uh, in this beautiful little studio at the Rocks in Sydney. Um, they have relocated down to Balwa now and have a, a performance space there called Imaginata Puppet Centre. And, um, yeah, they have been doing amazing work for forever, actually. Um, and it's a really lovely opportunity to have a look at their marionette work because I do believe that Sue Wallace, who was, who's part of Sydney Puppet Theatre, was part of the Tintukis many, many years ago. That's where she was trained. Tintukis was a um, beautiful marionette company that toured around in the late 70s, early 80s around Australia. Um, and many of our... Uh, marionettists that we have here in Australia had come through that, but because that company folded a long time ago, there is there's a, there's a bit of a gap in the marionettists um, in Australia now. Some of the adult shows as well, uh, because important <laughs> to point out that yes, the Melbourne. Uh, Festival of Puppetry, a lot of the shows are family-friendly, kid-friendly, which is why the festival occurs during the school holidays. Yes. Uh, but uh, those shows are at La Mama HQ and La Mama Courthouse. But then uh, nearby, at the Motley Bauhaus, as you mentioned earlier, you've, uh, there are three shows uh, specifically for adult audiences. Correct. So yes. uh, 
when we say adult, do we mean over 16, over yeah, 18? Well, we're saying 15 plus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's not hysterically explicit or anything like that, but the content is probably, yeah, it's like, you know, it's middle teenagers onwards. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, these great these works are really wild. So the first one that they all open or well, the two of them open tonight and the, the third one, which is actually at La Mama HQ um, at 7 o'clock Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, that one is called, um, uh, what is it, Wriggle and Squirm. And uh, that's like a kind of cabaret vignette show of lots of short acts together. And most of the people who came, who are in that work, came out of our training lab that we did over uh, 2022. Um but the ones that open tonight is Murray and the Marionettes. They came from Uranus. This is a really crazed show. Murray Rain, who's the performer, has spent his life um, performing marionette shows on cruise ships, like the most extraordinary marionettist and the most extraordinary marionettes. But again, unless you're the kind of person who gets to go on a cruise, you wouldn't have seen his work um, very often on the mainland. So here we are going to see it at the Bauhaus. This is a work, it's called, um, they're called Humanettes. So how it works, it's you use the human face and then there's a small bo- um, puppet body that um, he hangs sort of from his neck. So the face is really expressive, of course, because it's a human face but and the body is a puppet. And it's basically a puppet drag show. It's wild. It's so wild. Sounds um, great. Yeah, I really recommend coming along, getting a drink and just letting your brain explode with Murray. Um, the other work is Shoko, who is a Japanese-Australian uh, performance artist. And she she describes her work. She says it's kind of like an unusual Japanese comedy style that you don't get to see in Australia very often. Um, she uses puppets as... She's a frantuilicist. So, again, ancient art form that is pretty rare, uh, on our stages at least. Um, I haven't seen Shoko's work before, and so I'm really excited. I've bought myself a ticket for tonight. I'm bringing my mum. I'm really very excited about that one as well. For more information about the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry 2023... Go online uh, to lamama.com.au and to the What's On section. Uh, you'll find details on all the shows there, the kids' shows, the adult shows. Uh, and if you scroll further down, uh, we won't talk about the workshops because they're over. Except but for the junk one. That's, except for the there's junk still one. space in that one. <laughs> okay, so that is... He says, on Friday at 12 o'clock. Uh, yes, yep. Uh, so information on that. So that's a, a kid-friendly workshop. Yeah, and it's, yep. a, it's with a terrific young artist called Paris Bella. So really recommend squeezing in to the very last spot. And then this Saturday, the 1st of July, the Puppet Picnic, a free community day on the lawns of the Carlton High Rise Estate. So there'll be performances, roving puppets and more. A great opportunity to play if you're a local in that area um, or p- particularly if you're living uh, in the high rise. Uh, but, yeah, go to lamama.com.au for all... All the details about the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry, which is on now, kicked off uh, on the 27th. It's running through until the 2nd of July. Uh, lamama.com.au for details. I've been speaking with Sarah Kriegler, who is the co-director of Lemony S Puppet Theatre and the producer of the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry. Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much, Richard. We'll see you down there. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
Coming up, we're going to be talking about the current slightly concerning situation at the ABC and what some in the sector have identified as uh, spelling surely a reduction in dedicated and detailed arts coverage. Eleven days ago, the ABC uh, announced that it was making two dedicated and experienced arts editors redundant as part of a sweep of about 120 redundancies across the ABC uh, as part of an ongoing shift towards focusing on digital platforms. The loss of experienced arts editors and concerns about what this will mean and what these redundancies will mean and some other internal changes, what this will mean for arts coverage and commentary in Australia has certainly got some people across the arts sector perform, uh, concerned. I'm joined by Penelope Benton, who is the Executive Director of the National Association for the Visual Arts. Penelope, you issued a pretty strongly worded statement uh, expressing concern about what these changes at the ABC may mean for arts coverage in the country. What are your concerns? Thanks, Richard. Um, we have lots of concerns. Um, really, this is about the place of the arts within our national broadcaster. And from what I understand, um, this most recent cut have really dwindled down what was, you know, a team of 20 plus dedicated arts content makers from in around 2016 um, that have had, you know, successive cuts over the last um, several years. And now that's just been whittled down to only two arts journalists who will now be working without any specialised um, editors um, and having that support. So this decision to dissolve the ABC's standalone arts unit, as you say, together with the managing editor of arts and the arts digital editor, has come yeah, at a really confusing time. You know, we know that public interest in the arts in Australia is at an all-time high. And we've also just seen the, uh, as part of the Australian federal government's revive, the national cultural policy, um, we've seen a new commitment by the government to providing security of funding and independence for the ABC, including uh, reinstating indexation for ABC funding. So instead of the death by a thousand cuts that seemed to be happening to the national broadcaster under previous governments, we have a, a government that is supporting the ABC, reinstating uh, funding, and yet the ABC is saying, no, the arts aren't important. That's right. It, this decision is completely at odds with the national cultural policy, which the government have just launched just in January this year. And this policy makes, you know, a really powerful statement about the strength and vibrancy of our cultural sector and its importance to the well-being of all Australians, as well as its relevance across all areas of government. Um, you know, there's actually direct... Um, reference to the ABC within the national cultural policy that recognises that Australia's national broadcasters play an important role in shaping Australia's national identity, fostering social inclusion and encouraging a myriad of forms of our cultural expression. And as you say, it makes a commitment to provide security of funding and independence for the ABC through five-year funding terms and the reinstating of indexation. So, uh, you know, said in this context... Um, it's completely contradictory that the ABC would make such a, you know, op opposing decision to cut, you know, its dedicated remaining art specialist um, editorial at a time where it would make the most sense to actually broaden 
that team um, to really strengthen the um, you know, the content and, uh, that is commissioned and uh, the writers that are supported through the ABC. Now, given that the ABC Charter, the fundamental charter for the ABC, states that one of the functions uh, of the ABC is to, quote, encourage and promote the musical, dramatic and other performing arts in Australia. The Charter also states that the ABC will broadcast programs that contribute to a sense of national identity and inform and entertain. Arts coverage does all of that uh, in terms of contributing to a sense of national identity, telling Australian stories um, and entertaining. Uh, so to, to walk away from the Charter uh, feels like a, a fundamental breach of a duty of care by the ABC. Absolutely. And that, that's been the number one commentary from everybody who has spoken out about this. Um, it is in opposition to the Charter. I do understand that the ABC is saying that um, they will still cover the arts, but without this specialised, um, you know, interest and, uh, you know, having an ear to the ground around something that you're, you know, passionately interested in, which is what arts journalists and arts editors have, um, it, you're really going to miss quite a lot of, um, you know, opportunities to promote the depth of what um, Australia's creators, artists um, are making. And... This is this is a big country, and there is so much rich content that um, that is already being missed by having, you know, already such a, a reduced team. And from what I understand, um, you know, particularly the arts digital editor role, which had been working with very minimal resources in the last few years, um, because of that, you know, that background knowledge um, of the sector and of all the art forms. Um, was able was managing freelance writers, you know, and, and commissioning content that um, and commissioning writers that had a relationship um, to to um, the show or exhibition or content, whatever they were writing about, and that includes you know commissioning First Nations writers um, to speak on um, or report on content around the country. Um, so without an editor to do that, you know, without that depth of knowledge and the skills, um, bringing a level of dedication and coordination, that just won't exist. Um, and so not only, you know, they were not only editing content, but setting editorial. There's no way that two journalists will be able to manage um, the scale of that work. It, it really is... Uh, it seems impossible. It does seem um, impossible. As, as an arts journalist, I have to say, asking two people without uh, an experienced editor to guide them to try and do justice to the breadth and depth of the Australian arts sector, it, it feels impossible. It does, it does. And I, I, think, I think the level of nuance is not being considered either. Um, just, just having... Um, uh, I mean, we know, as you know, as an arts journalist, um, there, are, there are things... I mean, that's why we train as arts workers as well, so that we, we have that knowledge. And um, I, I think, sadly, I think this is another case of, you know, not recognising um, that arts workers, including arts writers and arts journalists uh, and arts editors, are professionals. Um, and, and we have that background knowledge that, that really needs to be acknowledged. And, uh, you know, we've heard that a lot through this national culture policy, recognising that art is work and art is a profession. Uh, and this is, this is completely at odds 
with that um, with that sentiment that has been set by our government. Now, a spokesperson from the ABC has said, and I quote, our commitment to the arts remains as solid and comprehensive as ever, with our excellent screen arts team moving into a new screen arts, music and events department, and our arts digital roles coming together within the newly formed digital and innovation team. Reports to the contrary are not accurate. What's your response to that, Penelope? Look, I... I hear that they're saying that this restructure is about making the ABC digital first. Um, it would have made sense to include the ABC's most digital, most senior digital editor covering the arts, part of that digital team. I, I just I can't understand why why they would have made that role redundant. What do you think the outcome of this will be? Because I know that as well as uh, yourself uh, at NAVA, uh, that uh, live perf- uh, perf- LPA, Live Performance Australia, have written to the ABC expressing concerns. Other uh, peak industry bodies have done the same. Do you think the ABC will listen? Do you think the government will ask the ABC to, uh, to reconsider this decision? I do, actually. I do think that the government will ask the ABC to reconsider. Um, you know, there was just uh, the, at the, um, the midwinter ball the other day, last week, um, we, heard, we heard from our Prime Minister making, um, you know, digs about the cuts to the art team, um, you know, publicly. So I, I, am, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if those conversations are already happening. Uh, I think that... Um, yeah, the impact, the impact really, without a reversal of this decision, the impact is, is a huge loss. It's a, a loss of, um, of the, the content that really ne- needs to be growing at this time and not being reduced. Um, look, I think a, a team of specialist arts reporters, programmers and editors is, is really critical to the ABC's capacity to create and commission quality arts programming and reporting and to record and maintain an archive of, um, of, of Australians' arts right now. It's a complicated situation on some levels because any government interference in the independence of the ABC can ring mm-hmm. alarm bells. Um, so we don't necessarily want the government wading into issue directions to what should be kind of uh, an independent body. But at the same time, I would hope said independent body doesn't need the government to tell them that this is a bad idea, that they will hopefully perhaps listen to the sector, particularly voices such as yours and others that have been raised in protest. I guess it's a what? It's a wait-and-see situation now. Mm, Yeah, I think it's a wait-and-see conversation situation but it's also uh, this is a time to speak up you know we know um you know cha- change happens when we listen to each other the meaa uh, um, uh, open letter at the moment which is uh, welcoming signatures um i think the more that people um speak up about this the more the abc hears um that this this is a big deal um i think that that will that, that, that should have impact on change. Uh, I really encourage people to, to make noise about this. I um, absolutely agree, Penelope. I think uh, this is definitely the time for 
concerned letters from uh, arts <laughs> lovers and listeners um, to uh, to write write to the ABC, write to Ida Buttrose, um, flood them with emails, with phone calls, uh, and make your concerns heard because. Okay. Healthy arts coverage is vital for a healthy arts sector. Couldn't have said it better, Richard. Uh, Penelope, thank you for your time. I've been speaking with Penelope Benton, who's the Executive Director of NAVA, the National Association for the Visual Arts. If you're an artist and you would like to know more about NAVA's services and support of the visual arts sector, you can go to visualarts.net.au. Penelope, again, thanks for your time. Thanks. Ah, that's right. Triple R. It's time for us to talk about visual art, and in particular, the work of Australian artist Clarice Beckett, who painted thousands of canvases in her lifetime, but many of them, at least 200, were thrown out by her father after she died, and more were devoured by possums and rotted because they were just stored in an open shed. The fact that we have any of her work at all is remarkable. Uh, I'm joined on the line by Lisa Sullivan, Senior Curator at Geelong Gallery and Co-Exhibition Curator of Clarice Beckett Atmosphere. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Lovely to be with you. The story of Clarice Beckett's work being rediscovered and given how close we came to losing it all is pretty remarkable in terms of art history. It is remarkable. I can't think of another scenario necessarily and indeed another individual who's been so intrinsically linked with that re-evaluation and, and raising those works with us as Ros Hollenrake has been. Uh, Ros Humphreys, as she was then in the 70s, ran a gallery in Melbourne uh, and she put a call out for unknown women artists to be exhibited in her space and Clarice's sister Hilda arrived in the gallery with half a dozen or so uh, canvases and shared them with Ros, which then led to the two of them going to this farm outside Benalla in which there were, as you said, about a thousand or 2,000 works stored, uh, about 370 or so of which could be retrieved, and they formed the basis of Rosa's exhibitions in 1971 and 1972 and our re and greater understanding of Clarice's practice as a whole. In terms of her status as an Australian artist, Clearly her gender was a key factor in her being overlooked while she was alive and for decades afterwards. I think it's undeniable that it was. I mean, she was a prolific card at her time. She had solo exhibitions from 1923 through to 1933. Uh, every year she would exhibit 60 to 80 ex uh, works. She got some coverage in the press, some of it positive, some of it not so positive. And I think some of the ways in which she was presenting and, and painting were seen to be relatively radical for the time. Um, you know, you had artists, reviewers such as Arthur Streeton, who wasn't you know, all that favourably um, seeing her work. But um, nonetheless, she did come around eventually. But she did have some uh, success in her life and notability, but she was collected as well within her lifetime by private collectors. But it's not until after her death um, that collections, uh, in you know, pu public collections, commenced acquiring her work through gift. Uh, and also in the 70s, of course, a number of works were acquired from Rosa's exhibitions in Melbourne, including a wonderful 
work acquired by Geelong Gallery from the 1972 exhibition. Um, and uh, that now marks 50 years, and it's the basis upon which we've brought this exhibition together. But I think her gender certainly played into it. Um, she was a very dedicated artist. She had home duties as well, caring for parents. But she was very focused, very prolific, and she wanted to be an artist. She had something to say, and she wanted to say it through her painting. Uh, and she was particularly fond of uh, painting in plain air, uh, so and, and capturing the, the the shifting play of of light uh, and the the way that colours change and clouds and so forth. And and there's a, a beautiful softness to her work as well. And I don't mean that in a kind of gendered kind of like oh soft and feminine kind of way. But there's um, the way she captures I don't know the play of of light in the clouds and in fog and in mist, for example. There's a a real gentle beauty to, to some of her work. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a gentle beauty that we're, we're experiencing so many visitors responding to quite emotionally, actually. They are beautiful works. She was a tonalist. She's, she's very well known. She studied at the National Gallery School for three years drawing under Frederick McCubbin, but then she had a very influential period of about six or seven months um, working with Max Meldrum, the tonalist in his private school. And so she adopted his techniques of tonalism, which were really to look at how we receive, how our eyes receive light and shade. She took that out into the open air, as you say, en plein air, uh, and she adopted his techniques, which were largely studio-based, not entirely, but largely studio-based, looking at still life and portraiture. So she took his tonalist techniques out to the outdoor world and, of course, responded to all of those atmospheric effects that you've just described, to, to rain, to light, to haze, to mist, etc., and was able to capture them so beautifully and transfer them onto canvas or canvas board just beautifully to really capture the truth in nature. That was her goal, the truth, to capture the truth in nature. Um, so she did that so well. And her technique was criticised at the time for being a little bit blurry. But in fact, um, they are beautiful renditions of, of atmospheric effects out there in nature. And indeed, the tonalist, the best viewing vantage point to see the tonalist work uh, was, in fact, six feet away from the canvas. So the artists would go in and out from their view, in and out from their canvas. And now, as viewers of these wonderful tonalist works, um, she, uh, you know, we, we look at them at the best vantage point of about six feet away. But there were also, I mean, it's not a gendered thing, as you say, that, that her works were slightly blurry. There were a number of male artists, obviously, who worked in the Max Meldrum School as well, uh, and who were her, her peers and colleagues around the, that time in those sort of interwar years. Now, she was, is best known, I guess, for, for living in Beaumaris, but there was a period that she did come down and work in the Geelong region, I understand. Absolutely, and that's been a very strong basis for our, our staging the exhibition. Not only that we celebrate 50 years since the major acquisition for us of Rainy Day, a 1930 painting, but also to celebrate and shift the focus across to this side of the bay. So indeed, she did have a very influential period of five minutes working in the western districts of Victoria uh, at, a, at a sheep farm called Naringal Station. And this was a really pivotal period in 1926 where she was able to step away from family duties. She had a studio on the upper level of a shearing shed looking out to the wide expansive pastoral lands of the Western Districts and it was a really transformational period uh, for her in terms of her painting. And also she headed across to Geelong Lawn and Anglesey on painting camps with some of the Meldrum students. So she did engage with this 
um, side of the bay. And of course, in her earlier years of life, she was born in Casterton in Western Victoria, and of course lived in Ballarat and Bendigo, and also some some, some periods of, of of living in Melbourne and studying in Melbourne. But it was in 1919 that her and her parents and her sister all moved to Beaumaris, a place that they'd holidayed at earlier in their lives. But they moved and relocated and built a home. And that that, that period of 1919, through to her death in 1935, she was wholly uh, a Beaumaris uh, situated artist and really engaged with that location. And we know her so well for those images of that, that area. And her engagement with the everyday, with the surrounds in which she was living with. But she did venture across to this side of the bay, which we are very excited about. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Lisa Sullivan, who's the senior curator at Geelong Gallery and is the co-exhibition curator of Clarice Beckett Atmosphere, which is uh, has been showing at Geelong Gallery for a couple of months. It's ending on the 9th of July, so this is your reminder that if you've not seen it yet, this is uh, going to time to put the date in your diary and get down there. Now, Lisa, in terms of that stay of... Uh, Clarissa's in the Western District, as you said. When I think of her paintings, as I mentioned earlier, I tend to think of, I don't know, misty bayside mornings, for example. But there is some of the work she produced kind of in uh, down uh, in the Western District. There's that real sense of radiant summer heat, that kind of, uh, I don't know, the, the start of a day as the sun's rising when you know that the heat is going to become crushing, but it's not quite there yet. They're incredibly atmospheric and vivid paintings from that period. Absolutely, and, and quite radically, or almost verging on abstraction, actually, some of her paintings that, that just blend so harmoniously these these tonal shifts that occur. On she worked on a very small scale, so they're they're incredibly powerful paintings for the for the scale that she works on. But you're right; they have an incredible, or she had an incredible capacity to convey a moment in time, um, sometimes a fleeting moment of the sun just uh, setting in the distance, but. Particularly, these Naringal works have this wonderful sense of radiating heat um, of the of the sounds and 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 shifts in the landscape that we can all sort of conjure and remember, uh, and 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 some of those visions that are in, implanted in our in our memory, um, she conveys so perfectly. And I think, in in part, that's why. People are so moved by her works. Um, also, a wonderful series of nocturnes in the exhibition as well similarly convey, uh, you know, the, the, the romance and nostalgia and, and um, almost sometimes melancholy of, of evening vistas as well. So she had an incredible capacity to um, translate, convey, to capture a moment in time and the mood and atmosphere of the landscape. Given that her father destroyed up to about 200 of her paintings uh, after Clarissa's uh, death. What do we think we lost? Uh, I've read somewhere, for example, a comparison as her work became more abstracted, a, uh, a comparison to Rothko, for example. Um, do you think That's those right. are the sort of works her father destroyed because he just he thought these are unfinished rather than thinking this is her advancing into a, a new area? I like to think of it in that in that way, um, Richard, because I think um, it's important. I mean, it's it's well documented that her father wasn't highly supportive of her practice. He was a bank manager. He perhaps, uh, you know, wasn't as supportive of her vision for her artistic career as as, as perhaps others might be. Uh, he didn't support a, a studio in the home that they built in Beaumaris, for example, despite her requesting a space. She she was denied that. She worked from her kitchen table at the family home. But I also like to think 
think that, you know, he was supportive of aspects. He was involved with a memorial exhibition that was staged in 1936 after her death. So that was organised by himself, Hilda, the sister, and also um, Max Meldrum were involved with that. So I like to think that there were some very experimental works that remained, perhaps unfinished, perhaps experimental, very much moving towards abstraction. But on the advice of Max Meldrum, I believe, uh, he was advised to destroy. They were, they were probably not advisable that they would be necessarily out in the public realm. So I'd like to think and take a positive position that um, he was, in, to a degree, you know, being relatively protective of her in that, in that sense. But it's undeniable that there is a loss to Australian art, that we haven't had a chance to see those works necessarily, and that with so many were destroyed uh, by natural element exposure uh, in the farm in Benalla. I'd like to celebrate that there are many works that we can now enjoy of hers, and it's undeniable she was moving towards something quite radical in Australian art. If you think that she died in 1935, some of these nocturnes, some of these Naringal landscapes are highly experimental, moving towards abstraction, and you have to wonder where she may have taken Australian art had she not died at the age of 48. Other artists have acknowledged that. Fred Williams, for example, saw her 1971 exhibition and basically said, or wrote in his diary that night, she got there first. She got to the point of abstraction or was moving towards that point of abstraction that we know and love Fred Williams for as well. And she really transformed the way I think people saw the Australian landscape back then and continue to see it now. Clarice Beckett Atmosphere is showing at Geelong Gallery, 55 Little Mallop Street in Geelong, uh, until the 9th of July. Uh, so this is your reminder that you've got a couple of weeks left and you should really go and see it. It's an, an important opportunity to look at works, not just from the Geelong Gallery's collection, works that have been borrowed from private collections and are rarely seen, as well as other institutions have loaned work as well for uh, a, a a very detailed show. Um, Lisa, I guess a final question for you, and perhaps uh, when we think of uh, the, the way that Clarice Beckett's work has been rediscovered, um, does that give us hope that there will be other great female artists from earlier periods in Australian history who will similarly be returned to their rightful place in the spotlight? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of work that has been done, but there's a lot more work to do. If we think, for example, about the roles of students at the National Gallery of School of Victoria, for example, there are many women listed as attendees of classes there that I think deserve a little bit of exploration and we hope to bring, you know, curators around Australia, I'm sure, would hope to bring a lot of those others to the wider attention of the public. I've been speaking with Lisa Sullivan, Senior Curator at Geelong Gallery and Co-Exhibition Curator, and we've been discussing Clarice Beckett Atmosphere at Geelong Gallery. Uh, the exhibition concludes on the 9th of July. Lisa, many thanks for the pleasure of your company today. Thanks very much, Richard. Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 